Good morning, church. That was uh, quite the video. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but um, I'm not sure I'm ready to be in Michigan or whatever we've lived through the last week, right? You folks that are uh, tuning in live stream, welcome. I'm glad you're here. We know you are, are used to this kind of weather, but I don't, I'm not so much uh, that uh, it's my cup of tea. I like it a little bit warmer, and I was walking around like a young calf worried I was going to fall and break something the entire time. That's the difference in when you're older and younger uh, with weather like this, right? You're more worried about what might happen. We ate good. Uh, we do a compound living where I'm from, so we just kind of rotated around, had a lot of progressive meals, so the vest is a little tighter today, but that's all right. That happens. We're glad you guys are here, um, and uh, uh, Tommy was right. It, it feels like that I haven't been out since last week when we were here, so it's great to see all you guys, and what a blessing to be together this morning. Um, Alan, Marsha, Griffin, where are you guys at? Right there? You guys up? Where are you? Yeah, right there. Would you stand up for just a moment? Fifty years this couple's been married. I think they deserve a round of applause for that. Congratulations. Yeah. Standing O, I love it. If there's anything worth a stand to know, it's 50 years. And thank you for being such a great example for the rest of us. What a blessing. The other Al, as I call him, Big Al. Um, I, you know, the songs today uh, over here really, I, I couldn't help but think about Charlie Goodwin today. He passed away this week uh, from his battle with cancer. And, you know, I met Judy and Chelsea and just wanted to be sure and uh, mention to you guys to be praying for those guys. But... Those songs were so uplifting, John, because it was such a message that, you know, this life is temporary. We don't know when it's going to end. We get news like cancer or we get news of some disease and we're not sure if the Almighty is just going to heal us and bless us in the healing. Or if he says, you know what, I'm going to bless you during that struggle and then you're going to come home to be with me. But what makes us different from everybody else that goes through these battles is we know about heaven. We know about it. And we know once this life is over and you've entrusted it to Christ and you're in his hands for all eternity, no one would ever want to come back. So as much as I love brothers like Charlie and he was a good brother and I'm going to miss him, the conversations he and I had through the battle was give God glory in the battle. And then when he's ready for you, he's going to take you. And that's what he did. That's a life well lived. Uh, and what a blessing that is for us. Andy Weatherford, where are you at? There he is. He's a nice-sized young man. He's 17 years old. He plays football, basketball, and track, I see. And because I am a frequent reader of Dandy Don, I know, Andy, that you are in the top 100 recruits in the state of Louisiana. I think that deserves a round of applause, too. So Andy's going to read our text for us today. Second Timothy chapter four, verse one and two. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, the living of the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort without with complete patience and teaching. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Good luck with your future. What a blessing. Uh, to hear the words of God from our young people. Uh, this, um, 
This passage that we're going to be in today in Acts 6 and 7 was a lot of fun for me. I was telling Mike, it took me back to my preaching school days and, and a reminder of what it's like to, to have a sermon that just, you know, the Holy Spirit puts it together and it has an impact on people. Uh, and that's what's going to happen today in this text. When, when our, you know, we every class in school would adopt a passage. And so the one that Andy read today from First Timothy or Second Timothy, a lot of classes took that because it was a great class for preachers. You know, preach the word, you know, rebuke, encourage, do all those things. Our class, we chose Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. It's really interesting that we would choose that because Jeremiah preached for 40 years and never had anybody ever respond to his message. And I thought, man, we're really stepping out there by picking something out of Jeremiah. But I love Jeremiah's heart because even though the people weren't ready for God the whole time he preached, he still kept preaching. He still kept putting the word out there. And I think that's such a good message for all of us to just keep living. Sometimes we get we get to thinking nobody's listening to us and I'm not able to reach my kids. And why is this guy at work? I just can't seem to break through. And we have these conversations. Just keep talking about it. Never stop. Our verse was Jeremiah 20 and verse nine. If I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name. In other words, if I just decide, you know what, after 40 years, I'm done. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. That's what the word of God does. It should burn in us to bless and to impact other people. Acts 6 through 8 is really interesting because it's it's some real transitions that are happening. One thing that's happening is the early church is growing now. And so with growth comes more people. And with more people comes what? More problems, right? Because people are messy. I remember when Melton was here and he used to say, you know, sheep, they got sheep snot on them. And, it, and it's not easy to get in there with sheep and, and tussle and do what needs to be done. But that's what we do because we're people, right? And none of us are perfect. So there's a kind of a need here in Acts chapter 6 of the first sort of organization of the church. Up until this point, there's just the apostles and they're, they're blessing people with miraculous signs and they're preaching the good news and people are coming to Christ and it's exciting. But then we have our first little hiccup, Acts 6 verse 1, if you want to follow along. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained. By the way, the first registered complaint in the church was right here. It was not the last, I can tell you. Because we're people, right? Something doesn't sit well with us, we complain. This was the first one. They complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, this is going to be sort of, you know, kind of a ridgeline that's going to be there all the way through the first century church. This idea between the Greeks and the Jews. Because the Jews had spent, you know, their whole existence avoiding the Greeks. First, God told them to because they go into the promised land and they're there and all of a sudden they're taking all these customs in and they basically destroyed most of Israel because of false gods and being with these Greeks and following these false religions. So now all of a sudden we come we're coming together and it's still just Jews. But even those converted Jews, that were Greeks. We're starting to see some issues. You see, races and ethnic groups have always been this way. 
That's why today we're in such a divided situation over race and so many other things in our culture. Look, this has been around since mankind has been around. It's nothing new. What's interesting is the solution is the same. Christ. Now, you can change all the names around and we can go from equality to equity. And now we're adding all these things in. But it's going to come down to one thing. Something bigger than us that draws us together where we don't look at differences. So there's this complaint. So the apostles, they realize they've got limitations. They're preaching the word. They're healing people. They're leading. They're doing what they're doing. And they realize that, you know, we can't we can't be and settle every dispute. It's probably the hardest thing for any preacher, any pastor, any person, a church, any elder to think that, you know, I can do all this. I can fix everything. No, you can't. This idea that we have to multiply out for other people to use the gifts and abilities that God gives them. This is the first place you see this. So what they did was, is they got seven men and these were seven spiritual guys and godly men. They saw the qualities in them and they said, you know, these guys can take care of this problem. And so they basically laid hands on them, which gave them the same gifts they had. And they said, look, here's your job. What's interesting is, is that Stephen is mentioned, as well as Philip. We'll catch more on him next week. But Stephen was gifted beyond just taking care of these widows. And that becomes evident. And I love that about any of us. Because when I watch these young leaders stepping up, you know, we had Derek McQueen's, his testimony a few weeks ago. I watch this young man, his wife, and I see what God is doing with them. And it started out with just something simple, like, we'd like you to do this. But when God has blessed a person with multiple talents and gifts, you can't hold that back. And that's exactly what we see happen with Stephen. So we get down to verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the member of the synagogue of the freedmen, which is ironic, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene, Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So it's just what we've been seeing all along, but now we've got the next generation, right? We've got this young man who's blessed by God. And I mean, he's, he's doing all the things the apostles are doing. So instantly there becomes opposition because that's what we're seeing in the whole setting here. Right. And so Stephen goes from feeding widows to now being one who's standing in the gap. And it happened quickly. Now, I want you to see what happens with opposition. And I want you to see if this looks familiar to what we see today. These guys, they can't win the argument. Because it's truth. They can't fight the truth. They're trying. They're coming over their arguments. They're creating their narratives. But they know they can't win this argument because it's truth. So you know what they do? After they create the narrative, they deceive. They start going around stirring up opposition, getting people to lie, false witnesses. And then they try to cancel the person who's bringing truth. Canceling. They think they're going to cancel him forever. This tactic always leads to violence. Always. We've seen it here since we started in the book of Acts, right? 
you beat somebody up, you tell them to be quiet, you pick up the stones, whatever it takes. We have to shut this down because we have no answer for truth. It sounds very familiar to what we see today. Truth. A way of life. False narrative. Deceit. Eventually we get to violence. It's going to happen more and more and more. The more people don't want to listen to truth. So our question is, what do we do? That was Stephen's question as well. Verse 11, they secretly persuaded men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Not true. That was a lie. They stirred up the people. They seized him. Here we go with the violence. They brought him before the Sanhedrin 13. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Same thing they did to Jesus. They're doing now to Stephen. Ironically, there's some truth in their lie. There's a little bit in there. Jesus said, yeah, I'll destroy this. And he meant him. But they thought he meant the temple. What's ironic is it's just going to be about 40 years and that temple will be destroyed. Everything they put their hope in. Because they miss Jesus. So how would Stephen respond to this threat? And put yourself in his position. How would you respond? I love verse 15. Acts 6.15, they were all sitting in the Sanhedrin. They were looking intently at Stephen because they're wondering, what's he going to do? And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's a perplexing phrase to me. What does that mean? You know, if your view of an angel is what we see people come up with in our culture, the little baby cherub that's floating around with a little baby face... I mean, maybe it was that. I don't think so. Every time I read about an angel in the Bible, they were fierce and they were usually glowing or shining in some way. So I'm imagining them looking at this guy and they're bringing all this against him and they're getting ready to kill him is what they're gearing up for. And they look over at this man's face and it has some sort of glow. And I can imagine it being just stern, maybe even a little coy smile saying, you're not going to get me. So what does he do? Well, Stephen gets what we called in preaching school his suitcase sermon together. They taught us in school. They said, look, sometimes the Holy Spirit just, I mean, you're studying that thing and you're, you, you know you've got to preach this sermon, but you know it's going to upset a lot of people. Because of tradition, because of whatever. But you decide that God has put that fire in your heart and it burns and you got to get up and preach that sermon. They said, pack your suitcase, boys, because it's probably your last sermon there. Now, you think, well, were they trying to get you to not preach the truth? No, they were trying to tell us when you preach truth, sometimes you're going to have to pack a suitcase. Because your audience won't want to hear any more from you. In the modern church, they send you right on down the road. Until you preach another suitcase sermon. This was the ultimate suitcase sermon. In fact, you could really call it a casket sermon. Because this sermon was such a humdinger that the reaction he was going to get would cost him his life. 
So in Acts chapter 7 to verse 1, the high priest has a choice here. There's two ways he can question Stephen. He could say, who is this Jesus that you guys keep talking about? Who is he? Tell us. Kind of the Gamal approach we look back in Acts 5. Or he could do what he did, which was follow the false narrative. He says, are these charges true? In other words, we've created this whole false thing about you. So you tell us, are they true? Follow our false narrative. But Stephen had another idea. You know what he gave him an answer? You know what his answer was? Why Jesus? And that's always our answer, folks. So many times we get to thinking like, you know, well, I'm not smart enough and to debate somebody or talk somebody or I get into some kind of chat thing on Facebook and I'm, I'm just not sure what I should say. If you talk about Jesus, you are always right. Always. That's always the Trump. You know, we used to joke about it. If you, somebody asked you a question in Bible class, what do you say? Jesus, right? But there is truth in that. Jesus always wins the argument. And when you know him, you know enough. Yeah, but we, we were talking about eschatology and this, that, and the other. Yeah, I know. But if you get outside of Jesus and start talking about things that who knows, maybe, then you're into the debate. Jesus. Why Jesus? This sermon is far too long for me to go verse by verse today, but I want to encourage you to read Acts 7. Take some time today or this week and read this sermon. It's brilliant. We, in school, we call this the scheme of redemption because God had planned this all the way through, all the way back. And so from the very beginning in the garden and then to Abraham and to the descendants of Abraham, God has laid out exactly what he was going to do. My time here in school, the best thing that I got from the blessing of being here for two years studying was that I finally saw the big picture. Scheme redemption, along with Old Testament history, helped me understand what God has done to bring us salvation. And it's incredible. He's done it over the course of man's history for us to be saved and it's clear and here we are at the midway point with these people and they can't see it because they weren't looking for the right thing they were looking for the physical even the disciples are we going to restore israel are we going to be in charge is it going to be this little strip of land over here and jesus kept telling them it's not about that it's bigger it's much bigger and it's going to include everyone. Now, Stephen, remember, they had two charges against him. So he doesn't say point, counterpoint, but he basically deals with both of the charges in this sermon. In verses 35 through 43, he's going to bring up Moses because Moses was a big part of this idea of redemption, right? Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. But he makes a point in verses 35 and 39 that the forefathers rejected Moses. He said, when Moses wanted to lead you out and he killed the, the, you know, he killed the guy who killed a slave, you wouldn't follow him. You said, who made you ruler over us? So you know what they got for that? 40 more years of slavery. Finally, at the burning bush, Moses comes back, leads them out that he could have done before. 
He goes up on that mountain. He's up there for 40 days. He's the, the literally the covenant that God is making with Israel is coming down through this man. And you talk about glowing. He was glowing from being in the presence of God. But while he was up on the mountain, you know what the Israelites did? We don't know who this guy is. Where'd he go? We don't know. Tell you what, we want to follow a golden calf. That's who we want for our God. And Stephen's preaching this lesson to these guys. Now he's making a point because in verse 37 he says this. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise for you a prophet like me from your own people. Now, that was a brilliant point. What he was saying was, you rejected Moses, your forefathers did, and mine. Now you're rejecting Jesus for the same thing. Trying to lead you out of the old covenant into the new eternal covenant. You know, they're listening. So far, nobody's gotten too upset. They probably amened about 98% of Stephen's sermon. It was that good. And then he gets to verse 45. And he says, the tabernacle remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Egypt. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Solomon built the temple. And everybody's agreeing with that. They're saying, that's right. That's the house of God. That's where he lives. And then he says a word in verse 48 that's going to change the dynamic of this sermon. However, however. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all things? God never lived in the temple or the tabernacle. He would visit once a year, his presence. He didn't live there. It was never his plan to live there because you can't contain our God in a building. You can't contain him in some place. And now he said, you will be my dwelling place. My Holy Spirit will live in you and you will be the temple of God. That's this new plan. Well, by now, he's at a he's at a point. You know, when you preach a sermon, you lay out truth and people listen as you're listening to this today. And you get to a point, a preacher gets to a point. So where are we going to go with this? Carl Allison told me if you hadn't struck oil in 20 minutes, quit boring. That was one of the things I learned in preaching school. Second thing was from Bill Smith. And he said, Al and fellas, when you preach a sermon, you want them to be mad, glad, or sad. In other words, you don't want to just walk out having nothing. I could have just stayed home today. Well, I guess Stephen decided to go for mad because he's about to conclude his sermon. And here's what he says in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, can you imagine the necks getting stiffer as he said it? Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Ooh, he, he went with the circumcision word. Very offensive. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, he done quit preaching and went to meddling now, right? He's all up in the grill. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. He went straight to the heart. Not only have you been unruly and unwilling to follow the Holy Spirit, you have now murdered the Messiah. That's mad and sad. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. They're hypocrites on top of everything else. You claim to be keepers of the law. You claim that I'm against the law. You haven't kept the law. Notice he goes for their arrogance, their heart condition, and their legacy of resistance. Straight to the heart. Well, when you preach a sermon, you hope to get a response. And he got one. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, verse 54, they were furious. And they nursed their teeth at him. You know, gnashing teeth. That's quite the reaction. Later, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him. That's a sermon. Stephen, when they're gnashing their teeth at him, full of the Holy Spirit, looks up to heaven and he saw the glory of God. And catch this, and Jesus standing at the right hand. Remember we read in Hebrews where when he went back, he sat down next to the Father at the right hand. Stephen's look up, up into heaven. He sees this scene, and Jesus stood up for it. That's what the moment was here. Because after Jesus left, this was about to be the first disciple to literally lay down his life for the gospel. And when that happens, you know what our Lord does? He stands up. That's powerful. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They start yelling and screaming and putting their hands over their ears. We don't want to hear this. And they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. They're going to shut this down. Violence. Do you know what? You're not going to silence the people of God. They thought they had ended it when they killed Jesus. Nope. Came back. They thought they're ending this by killing this man. We'll persecute this church. We'll chase you down. We'll hunt you down. You will not speak truth. Wrong. Two thousand years later, here we are. Still talking about Jesus. Right to the point, if they take our life, they take it. I get emails from people that listen to our podcast and they're like, well, I mean, we agree with you guys, but what's going to happen when they come and arrest us? They'll come and arrest you. Paul did some of his best work in prison. He wrote most of the New Testament from there. If that's where you're going to serve the Almighty, that's where we serve it. But we don't stop speaking truth. It's what impacts our culture. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. Same thing Jesus said, remember, to the Father? Receive my spirit. Same thing I'm sure my brother Charlie said this week. I'm coming, Lord. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out his last words, just like Jesus. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now that's a man of God. To forgive your executioner. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And I love that phrase, don't you? You, you can't kill us. Oh, I will kill you. No, you can't. You can get us to fall asleep for a while, but we're waking up. We're being restored fully. We're being resurrected. We're living with Jesus forever. And then we're going to see Stephen, and we're going to see Charlie, and we're going to see Bill Smith, and everybody we've ever loved forever. You cannot stop that. It's unstoppable because it's all powerful. So I don't know how this impacts you. It made me mad, glad, and sad. It made me sad that my brother was stoned to death for speaking truth. That should not happen, but it did. And it may again. It made me glad because I realized that, you know, when you look up into heaven and you see where we're going, you'll just go. And you'll forgive those on your way out. And you won't be burdened by it. Mad, glad, and sad. What a God we serve. How do you take a lesson like this and what do you do with it? I hope it inspires and encourages you to live the unstoppable life in whatever way God has gifted you to do it. As a church, we try to serve as many people as possible and to get the word out to as many as we can. That's what we do. We've impacted this planet for 60 years just out of this one location, but it's so much bigger than that. God will deliver us. There will be revival in our culture unless the Lord decides to come back. It's going to happen. But we may go through a lot of pain before we get there. We may have some of these Stephen moments of our own. I pray today for strength for all of us when that moment comes. Father, we are so blessed to read about men like Stephen. I'm so humbled and feel so unworthy because of the things I complain about when I read a story like this, when I, when I read a sermon like this. Thank you, Father, for taking inadequate lives and turning them into something supernatural and powerful, just like we read about today. Father, I pray for the hearts of everyone watching today, everyone that's here today at our, at our location. And I pray, Father, that anything that is burdening anyone, that is holding them back from this unstoppable adventure, that today you will lift that burden. That, Father, as hearts will release to you, you will inspire and encourage. And I pray, Father, when the day comes, if it does, where we face a moment like this, that we would be able to look to you. And we would be able to forgive those who have wronged us. 
and say, Lord, receive our spirit. Thank you, Father, for Jesus and his ability to do what he does every single moment of our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you have a need, why don't you come while we stand and